Hello, everyone, and welcome to the fourth edition of the South-South Fellowship Podcast. My name is João Pedro Caleiro, and I am a writer-researcher at the Lehman Foundation Program at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. And today, we'll be discussing some interesting initiatives to improve foundational learning in Kenya and some of the big debates that they have ignited. But first, we would like to stress that this material is not meant to be seen as an endorsement of one initiative or another, but as a starting point for larger conversations which are relevant to different countries in the Global South. Now, let's move on to Kenya, a country of 59 million people in East Africa. Kenya has made great strides in education, and since 2003, free primary education is guaranteed to all by law. But like in most developing countries, not all children in Kenya are learning how to read, write, and count at the right age. In fact, in 2011, national assessments showed that only 1 in 10 kids were at this level by grade 2. This means that the system is failing all the other kids, who will likely fall behind over time and struggle to keep improving their learning. This is a huge challenge for education policymakers to resolve. What actions and ideas would be most effective to change this scenario? A few years ago, Kenya set out to discover, with the help of resources from international funders, like USAID, the Foreign, Commonwealth, and Development Office from the United Kingdom, and the international organization RTI. They put together an initiative by the name of PRIMR, PRIMR which stands for Primary Math and Reading. It consists of a series of RCTs, randomized control trials, a method which separates comparable groups and only tests interventions in one of them. This way, they could tell exactly the effect of each of the interventions. And what did they discover? Well, that some interventions really worked to improve literacy in Kenya. They were based on new materials, a new way of teaching, and a new pedagogy. Another key feature was a robust training of the teachers, with constant support and engagement by curriculum support officers, known as CSOs. These officers were a pre-existing group, already government employees, which were supposed to monitor the classes and provide feedback. But that was not working well. However, when a new system was put in place, with open source technology and the use of tablets, and their visits started being tracked and their travel expenses compensated, their role seems to have flourished. This program would eventually be called Tusome and had very positive results to show. The gains in English for a Tusome student when compared to baseline was equivalent to one additional year of schooling, for example. Salome Ongele, which was a team leader for Tusome, spoke to us about the excitement felt by teachers in watching these things unfold firsthand. Yes, with the teachers, it was very exciting. Uh, during the pilot and into the national rollout, the teachers bought into the interventions more than anyone else. It was their program. I'm a teacher by training and by practice. I taught children, but one of the, they called it miracles. The miracle they saw was that they said they had taught for many years. Many of them said, I've taught for 30 years. I've never been able to help a grade two child learn to read fluently with understanding. 
this is the first time I'm in a program where I'm teaching a grade two child and the child can read with understanding. So Tusome became the miracle of the teacher. It's like, I didn't know the teachers would say, I didn't know I could do this. For the first time in my life, I'm getting so fulfilled. I'm excited. I'm delivering. So they could see the impact within a short time in school. The second thing is the lower grade teachers are always ignored and neglected in our African countries. I don't know about other countries. Training of teachers in service focuses in upper primary where children are about to do the national examinations. So these teachers we were handling at early grade level, they were teachers that did not have any in-service experience, any training by external uh, uh, people, by the Ministry of Education, by teacher service committee, they didn't have. So for the first time, they were seeing a program that was focusing on them and training them on areas of pedagogy that they were challenged, that they were struggling on, that they didn't get trained on during the pre-service training. So this was a game changer to them. So they immediately embraced the program and they were the ambassadors of the program. With these promising results in hand, the Kenyan government decided to expand the initiative to the entire country. They did not want to pick and choose which provinces would get the opportunity to experience its benefits. And they did not want to have to deal with the education system having more than one parallel pedagogy at the same time. But scaling up a program like that is a complicated business. Many initiatives which work well on a pilot fail when they try to make that jump. And because it was the government pushing it publicly, just imagine the risks. If something went very wrong, the backlash could be fatal. Other than that, they now had to get many other institutions and stakeholders on board. If you wanted all the teachers in the country to be teaching a new method, for example, you had to get the teachers' union on your side. But they were a tricky group to work with, and they were not there with you, at least not yet. And this was not only about listening to everyone, but also making sure that the program had strong roots inside the system. Part of this had to do with deciding where it was going to be domiciled within government, because it was indeed connected to all aspects of the education system, and different parts of the administration had a fair claim to leading it. Benjamin Piper, who was the Senior Director for Africa Education for RTI International and the Chief of Party for Tusome, spoke to us on an individual capacity about this particular challenge. Yeah, I think typically one of the challenges that happens with any program is where it's domiciled, who's responsible for it, where does it sit? And because sometimes there's an assumption that having a new program come will come with some additional resources and support, it's quite a contested thing. No, it should sit in primary education, it sit in the curriculum body, it should sit in the quality assurance, all of these have pros and cons. But um, by virtue of where the decision from the ministry was about where it sat, there were other parties who thought it should be with them. And so there's some resistance with a couple of those bodies uh, from the beginning because of that, uh, connect, um, because of where it was at. And it also makes sense, right? If you 
if it wasn't put in the curriculum body, but it's clearly connected to curriculum given all the tasks that we were expected to do with ministry on revision of materials. So there was some concern from them initially. There was some concern from the quality assurance body. Obviously, there was also this kind of joint technical team whose responsibility was to report back to each of the each of the directorates and the various bodies. But that's not the same as you know primary was able to say, look, this sits in us and we're the owners. So other other directorates had that as a concern. Some of the other challenges for scaling up to SOMI were simply practical. The logistics of training, for example, grew manifold from pilot to national program. So Tusami managers could not maintain the same number of days of gathering them all together. It was simply too costly and complicated. The inputs of Tusami, such as the new teacher guides and the books with the new pedagogy method, now had to be delivered not only in a few hundred schools, but in tens of thousands. And the curriculum support officers would have to be effectively covering the entire territory of Kenya with their visits, instead of only a share. Salome, who was there from the start, talked to us about how this transition from pilot to national program happened in practice and the learnings that came with it. Many things could not work the way the pilot worked, but we had to reflect and think through it before we even started the implementation of the national program. And we had to try to be realistic. Some we got well, some we learned when doing the national rollout and had to adjust. Like the example I've given, we had to adjust some. Some we got well, some we missed. And it covered even, and what we missed, we had to reflect and adjust. So there was a lot of implementing and adjusting, implementing and adjusting, implementing and adjusting. But then we also had um, a scenario where communication was really enhanced, like communication and review of the data that is coming from the field. Tools we are using and looking at what we are seeing in the field. And weekly meetings as technical team to check what are these things coming from the field. And training every holiday for the teachers and reflecting on what we are seeing on the field to change the training content, to respond to the gaps that are being reported that teachers are having, the struggles that teachers are having. So the pilot became somehow slightly different from the national rollout. It just could not be implemented the way the pilot was implemented. But the key components remained the same. The good news is that all of this was hardly a surprise. The pilot program had been thought out from the start with the possibility of scaling up in mind. All the interventions were supposed to be cost-effective and be implemented with pre-existing government staff. The idea was not only that very small interventions could eventually be scaled up, but that they could also survive in the long term after all the extra resources of the program have been long gone. It is often mentioned that ideally, the end goal of the program was to no longer even have a name and just become government policy. Rachel Hinton, a senior social development advisor at FCDO and a visiting fellow of practice at the Blavatnik School, will close the first part of this podcast speaking in more detail about the need to design for scale 
and the importance of thinking carefully about sustainability concerns. Yeah, the need for sustainability is a really important aspect of donor work um, in education. And there are many ways in which we aim to ensure sustainability. I can give a few examples. Firstly, an intervention or reform needs to actually be cost effective. There is no point in having a highly effective program in terms of learning outcomes or access to education, which is then unaffordable for the government to take to scale or implement in the long run. So, for example, we work with governments um, to model the costs of interventions and then identify the most cost-effective implementation models. So in Kenya, for example, in 2012, government spent $112 per student. So if then an intervention is going to cost $500, um, that's not going to be sustainable. In the education sector, we have recently launched, alongside the World Bank and the UN, um, a global panel of experts um, who actually look at what works, but not just what works, but at what cost. And every year they're producing what's called a smart buys report that helps governments take decisions on which interventions will have impact and at what cost. Um, so this has demanded that we develop a new measure called delays, um, like just the learning adjusted years of schooling, um, which is a comparable measure that can be used to look and compare different types of intervention. So, for example, when we look at that, the, the Tsumi initiative, for example, would be considered a good buy, meaning that it's a cost-effective way to increase learning outcomes. So cost is really key. And secondly, designing for scale from the start is very important. So you might be able to implement an intervention really well with outside, you know, newly trained and enthusiastic teachers who've just come out of teacher training college and it works really well. But what if we then try that same intervention with teachers who've been in the system for 10 or 20 years and they're jaded and they're tired and they've got family commitments and um, all the challenges that come um, with alongside that. It may not work at all in the context of the actual weaker system structures. And so we need to design for scale from the start, understanding the system weaknesses. Um, I, I just this is just something that we often forget to do. And this is what's called sometimes building in, which uh, also um, was something important in the Tsomi place, which was trying to look at the range of languages, for example, with curriculum support officers themselves supporting large numbers of school under the management of county and sub-county um, offices. Um, and also thinking about things like technology that can work both in urban or rural areas um, with realistic cost constraints as well. As we move to the second part of the podcast, we want to address a different dimension associated with Tusami, which we haven't touched on so far, but which is relevant to making large-scale reforms in education work. Tusami was a project done in a global South country 
with resources and some level of leadership from global North countries. This is something that affects the relationships between stakeholders, as well as their perceptions, and invites a few questions. What should we be attentive to when external funders from the global North are funding education reforms in the global South? Well, one important thing to be mindful of is that these countries may have different ways of working, and they may have a troubled shared history, often because of colonialism. Second, the fact that one of the countries has the funds sets out from the start a complicated dynamic. Who has a seat in the table? Who makes the decisions? Who gets their voice heard? And in what way? Third, what does these dynamics between funders and recipients mean for the ownership of local actor? This is a key issue to ensure sustainability of reforms in the long run. And in practice, it has to do with a process of dialogue and co-creation. According to Rachel Hinton, from the donor side, one should be guided by a triple helix with three E's. The first is robust evidence, which ideally should come from the local context. The second is expertise, which is not only technical, but also the emotional competence to understand the networks and the relationships in the system that need to get on board. And the third E in the helix is the environment, which means understanding that context matters and not trying to copy and paste interventions from a different place. Then, she also mentioned what she sees as the major risks associated with education projects led by international donors in Global South countries. Here's what she said. I think there are major risks in the way that particularly donors um, may go about trying to support service delivery uh, in the global south. And I would say there are three major risks. The first is being top down in the approach. The second is lacking an understanding of the political economy. And the third is weak use of data and accountability loops. So if we just explore each of those in turn, um, if you take a top-down approach, it really results in weak stakeholder buy-in. And actually, it's key to start with understanding the political economy. I would say we've forgotten some of the innovative tools that we actually were developed by people like Robert Chambers in the 1990s when they had participatory learning approaches um, that were really key to support that understanding of local realities. Um, so, you know, it's really key if we want to sustain change over time to actually get buy-in from across political groupings and, the, and understand that political landscape. I mean, let's take the example of the Kenyan Ministry of Education. Um, you know, they wanted to scale up that pilot um, after, after it was developed. But actually, um, once the political players changed, um, that there was no longer the, the same buy-in for the initiative. And, and therefore, we now see that some of the fantastic elements of that are no longer sustained and the money from inside the government isn't forthcoming to um, pay for that. Understanding the political economy is, is crucial. We often forget to take time to look deeply at the incentives and needs of our potential saboteurs, as you might call them. Actually, ensuring you engage 
those people who might be initially against a reform is really key rather than you know avoiding them, which is what we often um, might do. An example there would be the Kenyan National Union of Teachers. It was a very powerful union in Kenya, um, and they were concerned to do their own review, for example, of the Tisomi program. And when the initial scaling was happening, um, that union wasn't a champion. Um, and it took a lot of effort and time to build those relationships to, um, to win them over, if you like, so that they were supportive of the intervention. But again, we can't be, um, you can't rest on your laurels because one leadership, um, if that changes, you may not have that same ownership when that leadership changes. Like Rachel said, it is not an easy thing to get stakeholder buy-in and ownership to achieve permanent solutions to foundational learning. And that can be particularly challenging when there are suspicions and resentments involved in the relationships and dialogue is not done in the very best way. Deborah Kimachi, director of the Dignitas Project and a fellow from the South South program, was not involved in Tusomi directly, but followed the repercussions on Kenya's education system as it was being implemented. From her own lived experience in the NGO sector, she stressed how active listening and real collaboration can be key to creating ownership and policy sustainability. She started out with what she perceives as key questions that should be asked in the context of any donor-funded development program. Well, at what point do you bring them on board? So do you design when the grant everything else and then bring them on board when all the design work is done? Or do you sit together and say, first of all, let's find, let's gather the research together. Let's build this kind of problem assessment, needs assessment, what's actually going on. And then together think about what the solution could be. And then look at where the funding and resources to potentially support that kind of solution. Now, the, the way the development sector functions doesn't always allow that to be possible. But I think that's part of the dysfunction of the development sector, actually. <laughs> and I think we need to address that. Um, and, and so... I think when we, what we have found, and I have to say we do these things on a much smaller scale because we're a smaller organization, but when we co-design with government as peers and this kind of mutually reciprocal process of designing and learning and exploring together, it takes us on a path where it's just a very kind of synergistic then relationship that allows really healthy implementation. Um, and, And I think that makes a huge difference. Um, and it also allows things to be rooted in community. Um, and at the moment, many huge donor-funded programs that come from outside are not rooted in communities in the same way. And so there is definitely a disconnect. Well, and you know yourself, if somebody brings a project to you when it's already designed and you're just being told what to do to deliver on it, your level of buy-in is likely lower than if you, you dream with somebody about what you could achieve together if you were given the chance. One major takeaway from these conversations is that however important evidence and the actual content of the reforms can be, engagement, listening, and dialogue are just as important. And one lesson is clear. The earlier you bring in key stakeholders and incorporate their concerns and ideas into the project, the more likely it is that it will be really enmeshed into government structures and sustained in the long term. Let's hear it from Deborah again on these matters and what she perceived as the complicated power dynamics 
which revolved around Tusame. There were longer-term questions around how it would be sustained, how it sits alongside CDC, the new curriculum, um, what it meant for various officers as Tusame would um, phase out and that kind of thing. Um, and I, I think underpinning all of that is this kind of power-money dynamic that is there with big donors alongside government. Um, and I think that's something that's almost impossible to move away from um, at that kind of level of conversation. Um, so a lot of it is is inferred and implied, um, sometimes explicitly stated um, opinions, but um, not necessarily for the public domain. <laughs> um, so I would say across the board, it was a real mixed feeling. There, there were there were good pieces of Tusome, but um, definite questions about sustainability. And I think overall, it felt like something that was instructions issued from above. Um, and so it kind of trickled down as you have to you have to implement this, you have to do this, but not really a deep understanding of the why and the value and that kind of thing. Regardless of the tensions. Some of the features from Tusami are seen as an unequivocal success. Think of the new books with the Tusami pedagogy, for example. They were attractive, colorful materials, identified as a major factor in the program's success. However, it was not easy, both financially and logistically, to make sure that they were produced, printed, and reached every single student in the country on a one-to-one ratio. Well, Tusame managed to centralize the procurement and get it right, which was a learning experience for all involved. The same can be said about the training. The issue on how to gather all of them together in such a scale that we mentioned before was ultimately well resolved and proved that it was possible. However, in any new program, there will always be a complicated balance to be found between two extremes a new program just giving support for government to keep doing things in the same way, or in the other, coming from above with a new idea and trying to change everything all at once. Benjamin Piper, the Tusami chief of party, gave us his individual view on the three important lessons that he took away from the experience of Tusami. I think the number one lesson is that government can do things differently. So during the, the outcomes in Tusome, so you can double learning outcomes on average at a national level using the same government officers. Obviously, there was some layer of technical support, but the training was done by them. The process and management was done by them. And the outcomes doubled in a year. So outcomes can be better, and they can be better using the personnel that exists. I think a second lesson would be that the most ideal end line of a program is to have the program just not have a name. It is just a government program. As I said, the books that are used, English and Kiswahili, don't say to submit, but they're government books that have the some of the core content inside. Um, the book distribution and book procurement process doesn't say to submit, but it's kind of core government intervention. Um, I think a third one is that Large-scale donor-funded interventions are complicated given the all the different um, stakeholders that need to be connected, right? I think if, because some people have said this, oh, we should have done more training with the quality assurance officers from the beginning, and we should have done more at the county level. All of these officers got trained, but the honest truth 
is that if we had trained all of the officers for the number of days that everybody wanted, there would have been no money left very quickly. You would spend all your money. So you do have to make tough choices alongside, I mean, the government has to make tough choices of what's the, what's the most leverageable portion of the system that's going to make the biggest difference on learning outcomes. And even if not everybody in the system is happy with everything, given the interests of doing visits and interest in doing the trainings, given the, the resources that come with it, it's okay to not have everybody be happy with everything, because if you made everybody happy, there'd be no money left and uh, the program really, really wouldn't be targeted. Like Piper said, not everyone was happy with everything. And the implementation of TUSAMI on a national scale included some major tensions as well. Take the curriculum, for example. In 2018, Kenya started the national rollout of a new competence-based curriculum, the CBC. By that time, TUSAMI had already been well underway in its national implementation. These two very important pieces of the education policy in Kenya had to be fully cohesive, and that was a process that did not always go smoothly. Teachers also complained about being overwhelmed with having to deal with so many ongoing reforms at once. And there were major reservations about some of the issues we discussed before on top-down approaches and challenges in dialogue. Sara Hutum, former chairperson of the Kenya Institute of Curriculum Development, KCID, and a fellow in the South-South program, spoke to us a bit about the general tensions she could see happening in the project. In her view, the people in the Ministry of Education did not always feel that their outlook was taken into consideration. One of the tensions um, of uh, Tosome that um, everything was done, developed in the U.S. or by U.S. consultants, and then thereafter brought for implementation. And and number one, number two, um, you you also know the way the U.S. Um, and U.S. funded programs work at that time. Um, they would sign the paperwork in the ministry, the treasury, um, and then after that, the Ministry of Education is told this is what you need to do. So there was very little involvement um, by the education experts, and there is a lot of expertise in Kenya, but there was little involvement in terms of developing um, uh, the whole program outlay. Um, of course, the USID people, RTI, were, were very quick to stress that it was evidence-based and these were the numbers. Um, but there is the science of developing something and, uh, and implementing it, and there is also the art. And uh, I think a lot could have been done better in terms of the art. Now, this claim is disputed by an external actor who argues that the program was designed and developed mostly by Kenyans. In any case, here it is worth mentioning that there was another initiative going on in Kenya at the same time as Tusame was being scaled up nationally, and which may provide some useful contrast with it. Remember the PRIMR we spoke about in the beginning and its testing of interventions? And remember that basic numeracy was a part of that. Well, this component was picked up by different funders the Global Partnership for Education, GPE, and the World Bank, and was also scaled up nationally. Its name was Kenya Primary Education Development, pride with a knee in the middle. But there was one important difference. Unlike Tusami, 
Pride was led through internal teams at the Ministry of Education since the start. And some people see that as contributing to a greater sense of ownership and purpose, which made adaptations to the program easier over time. And now, according to them, this may contribute to how resilient the program will be over the years. And it may also be likely to improve the capacity of the Kenya Ministry of Education to deliver on other initiatives and integrate it with everything else that is happening in the country, though there are different views on this. Sara Hutu spoke to us a bit about this contrast in the case of Pride. So that meant that it, it uh, was implemented with all the efficiencies or inefficiencies of the ministry. And I think the good part of, of doing that is that then the, a project can actually help streamline some of the inefficiencies in a ministry. Number one. Number two, there's a little bit more longevity because, um, because Pride was implemented through the ministry, there were diff- um, specific committees set in. Uh, there has been an effort to continue fundraising and to continue developing aspects of that. So when the GPE funding came, for example, uh, one of the things that was found very useful in Pride was, uh, I think they call them um, teacher, where teachers come together and then they, they observe each other's lessons, and after that, they meet um, in groups. Um, and these groups um, are supported by the zonal, the, 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 the curriculum support officer. So we now see, and I will tell you for free, that pride has been more sustained because it was developed from within. Officers grew with it. They did not feel there was intimidation and they have been able to continue thinking about ways of taking on the best practices. Now, Piper pointed out that these teachers' meetings at the zonal level that were just mentioned initially began with the support of Tusami. And one very important measure of success in the end is how much each of the programs could deliver in terms of improving learning outcomes. Reports show that while Tusame doubled reading outcomes at a national scale, Pride managed an increase of only a few percentage points in numeracy outcomes. Thank you very much for listening. We hope that you enjoyed this podcast and will come away from it reflecting about how to scale up literacy and numeracy programs and some of the complex dynamics that can arise when development funders interact with local actors, as well as the upsides and downsides of different ways of working. Please refer to the discursive learning document about the same theme, which takes some of these issues further. And if you want to learn more about education initiatives in the Global South, don't forget to read our other discursive learning documents and case studies and listen to our other podcasts. The materials on Pakistan focus on public-private partnerships in education. In the case of Brazil, One is about the experience of coalition building to establish common curriculum standards. And the other is about the efforts of two municipalities to improve foundational learning. And we hope to hear your comments, suggestions, and questions through the email lehman.foundation at bsg.ox.ac.uk. And see you next time.